This is John Halsman, and welcome to our latest Around the World in 20 Minutes, where we try to make sense of the beguiling new world we find ourselves in. And today we're going to look at the perils of live radio. I have my chief researcher, Witch Witchington the Cat, sitting here, who is fascinated by what I'm doing, talking to you all, and may very well interrupt this. So if you hear me fighting with a cat in the background, that's what's going on. But again, we give you the truth, the unvarnished truth, and I love Witch dearly. And she's very interested in our work here and usually sits next to me while I do my research. So let's play this one by ear. Wanted to let you all know that in a couple of weeks I'm heading off. I have two big trips coming up in the next month that relate to the book and the work we're doing. Uh, the first trip is a week in Washington in the belly of the beast. And this is to see the our friends at the Stand Together Alliance who have... Uh, given us the grant that's allowed us to write The Last Best Hope and uh, check in with them on what we're doing. We're also having a meeting with our public relations team in Washington because the book will be formally unveiled to the media September 13th. So we have a meeting with everybody in the same room and my uh, dutiful sidekick, Sundance to my Butch Cassidy, John Goodnight's going to be there, which will be fun to catch up. And then we're going to just see literally everybody as we do. I think we have 20 meetings planned for the week. So I'll involve you in that. Um, as we go. Um, and then two weeks after that, I'll be in London to do the audio recording of the book. I get to do that myself. This is the advantage to being a writer and a speaker. Uh, the oratory end of things, that being an orator, I will do that. And so I'll, in three days after staying in the Langham, as many of you know, my absolute favorite hotel in the world, uh, Churchill's Hotel. On the good side, Edward VIII's Hotel. On the bad side, but the best hotel in the world, in my view. And I'm going to see my friend Dan, uh, who drives me about in his taxi and has since I was a kid. And we're going to reunite and uh, drive me to record the audiobook uh, version of, of Last Best Hope, uh, which is very exciting. So it's all about the book in the month ahead. And I wanted to, again, implore all of you in our community, and thank you, so many of you have. Please do pre-order the book as we attempt to defeat uh, the algorithm uh, of Amazon. The more people who pre-order, the more the book gets shown through the algorithm to people all around the world. And as we want to make this book a political success as well as an artistic and creative success, the more of you who pre-order, the better the book does and the more advertising and placement it gets. So please, please, please do pre-order and tell everyone who might be interested to do so now because really between now and the New Hampshire primary, uh, which is in late, I think probably late January now. John will have to fill me on the exact date. But this is the key point for pre-ordering the book, which is when we're going to see how it does. So these few months, three, three or four months, are absolutely critical. So please pre-order. Tell everyone would be interested to pre-order now. And that would be the best and greatest help you could do for our community. But as I promised, and I think this is interesting, I'm going to go through each chapter and not read what I'm at, but really look at what was I thinking? What does a writer think as he's actually writing? Um, and so today I'm going to look at the second chapter of the book, The Last Best Hope, A History of American Realism, our book. Chapter two, John Quincy Adams and No More Stupid Wars. And there have been only three real geopolitical revolutions in American thinking in all of American history. And last week we looked at the first of them, which is the Lennon-McCartney Partnership of George Washington and Alexander Hamilton, which really laid out the basis for Manifest Destiny and through the Jade Treaty, the United States coming to dominate the whole of North America. 
Interestingly enough, the second major revolution in American thinking followed in the next generation that most of the really interesting changes in American geopolitics happened early. Um, and that's something I've learned only through doing the book and thinking it through in great detail. The two of the three big innovations happened early. There's an awful lot of lessons for realism as we lay out what a modern realist foreign policy would look like coming ahead. But really, of the, of the three innovations, we're having two of them in the first two generations, the revolutionary generation of John Adams and the next generation, that of his son, John Quincy Adams. You then have to wait all the way to Franklin Roosevelt to get a third innovation, the one that we live in now. But this still doesn't stop us finding these timeless realist adages, but it does really show the importance of looking at the early days of the Republic for how American foreign policy is still formulated. And John Quincy Adams is really the founder on his own, no, no McCartney to his Lenin, of this second revolution in geostrategic thinking. But the basis of that and the realist adage to take away from John Quincy Adams is what Donald Trump said about no more stupid wars. The idea that you don't fight wars of choice, that this gets in the way of your geostrategy rather than furthering it. If you don't want to end up like Europe, a very compact uh, continent with way too many countries fighting over way too little land. And that's a recipe for perennial war as opposed to stability and dominance. And whereas the first generation, the Hamilton-Washington generation, set up the Jay Treaty and made peace with the hated British enemy, turning its back on its beloved French ally in order to secure North America for the United States, John Quincy Adams, through the Monroe Doctrine, is going to go and secure most of the Western Hemisphere for the United States, which will make the United States a dominant player in world politics in perpetuity. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But the key adage, the takeaway, is that means you don't fight any more stupid wars. Rarely has genetics mattered so much as it does with the complicated figure of John Quincy Adams, who is a, a figure much like his father. Again, genetics matter. He's almost a carbon copy of his father in terms of temperament, a man easy to admire, but hard to like and very hard to love. Though I admit to loving them both, but I think I'm the exception. As John Quincy Adams' long-suffering wife, Louisa Catherine Johnson Adams, put it, he is exasperating, tangentious, self-absorbed, and yet in the end, magnificent. Like his father, John Quincy Adams was cold, arrogant, stubborn, aloof, intellectual, uh, intensely patriotic, and beneath the cold veneer, passionate about his beliefs. And like his father, was a great speaker. Um, he had almost unimaginable standards to live up to as his formidable mother, the one really important woman of the early revolutionary age intellectually. Um, I think Abigail Adams was certainly John Adams' equal, and uh, his partner, John Adams, was very lucky to have her, and for you know the, the revolutionary generation, she was well regarded by people as disparate as George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, who would come to her for advice. All that's wonderful, and she's a fascinating and wonderful figure to follow in her own right. But if John and Abigail Adams were my parents, and I'm about the most ambitious man I know, life would still have been very difficult, because they set him the almost impossible standard that if you're not president of the United States, you're somehow a failure. And this really sets John Quincy Adams apart. And indeed, unlike his other brother, Charles, who became an alcoholic and an utter failure when confronted by this standard, John Quincy Adams tried valiantly 
to leap over it. He spoke nine languages. He was the U.S. ambassador to the Netherlands at the ridiculous age of 27 for George Washington. He was a congressman um, and probably America's greatest secretary of state ever. The only real blot on his record, ironically, was the same as that of his father. Uh, he was not a very good president. In fact, he was a lame duck from the minute he took over in the corrupt bargain where he won the election only in the House of Representatives, where the frontrunner Andrew ja Jackson was done in by Henry Clay siding with Adams and was a lame duck from the minute he came to power in 1825 until he left in 1829. The only blot on his copybook as a diplomatist, um, as an intellectual, as a fantastic congressman and perhaps our greatest secretary of state, like his father, his only failure was that of being a one-term and not very successful president. But we're going to look mainly at his glorious period as secretary of state for the Monroe administration, James Monroe, who trusted him implicitly. They had a wonderful working relationship, which shouldn't be underestimated as to why Adams was able to do so much. He had the implicit support and respect of the president, and in return, he gave him his unstinting loyalty. And he was secretary of state for eight years from 1817 to 1825. And again, this is the second U.S. foreign policy revolution of the three that we've had. He took Washington's foreign policy and fashioned into it a grand strategy that held for most of the rest of the 19th century. And this is Adams's great accomplishment. The first thing to say is, as a realist, you have to look at the world as it is words and all. If you're going to play cards, you have to know the cards that you've been dealt. And there were three factors that John Quincy Adams understood immediately and that matter fundamentally for his great success moving forward. First, he saw that after Waterloo, after the Battle of Waterloo and the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815, Europe was going to turn inwards, that it wasn't looking for having adventures outside of the European continent, that really the Napoleonic Wars were the first set of world wars. And that given this, that Adams was determined that the Europeans were not in the mood for adventurism and that this suited the United States to the ground. Secondly, Spain particularly, devastated by the Peninsular War, which in effect was a very bloody civil war, fought between 1807 and 1814, incredible atrocities. If you look at the paintings of Goya, when you see it, if you go to the Prado, which is a wonderful museum, and see these paintings, what really comes across beyond that Goya is fantastic is the brutality of this war, that this was a guerrilla war, and that this war greatly impacted Spain. So Spain's in utter chaos, unable to run its empire, unwilling to do so, even after the restoration of the Bourbons in 1814, after Joseph, Joseph Bonaparte, Napoleon's somewhat feckless and hapless older brother, is deposed, and Napoleon has to retreat from Spain after the Duke of Wellington manages the skillful Peninsular War, that Spain is in absolutely no shape, unwilling and unable to defend, it, to defend its Latin American colonies, and revolutions start to spring up soon after in these colonies as they realize that Spain is in no position to help them. And the third factor that Adams realizes is that the British Navy is the supreme military force of the age. We would say in modern terminology that the British Navy provided lift. It can get more people, more places, more quickly. That's what lift is. More people, more places, more quickly than anybody else. And this gave the British control of the seas, control of the commerce of the world, and made it the preeminent superpower of the age. 
And so John Quincy Adams looks at the world and says, gee, after Waterloo, the, the, Brit the Europeans are turning inward. Second, Spain's in no position to defend its empire, and these revolutions will be bubbling up. And third, the last card he's dealt, the British Navy is the supreme military force of its age. He was to fashion these real facts into the Monroe Doctrine, which amounts to the second revolution in American foreign policy thinking. Before this, though, John Quincy Adams realizes that he acquires East Florida. The United States during the Peninsular Wars literally just walked in and took West Florida, as it was known then, which is now the Florida Panhandle. But East Florida uh, was ceded through the Adams-Onus Treaty of February 1819, which finally was proclaimed in February 1821. The United States buys up um, East Florida, which is the rest of Florida, from the Spanish. Now, in practice, the Spanish really control only the coastline and San Augustine, which was their capital. The rest of East Florida is now dominated by the Seminole Indian nation, but General Andrew Jackson goes and subdues the Seminoles, and then John Quincy Adams swoops in and buys up the rest of East Florida for a song. He has to take on U.S. settlers complaining about the Indians attacking them, about $5 million in liability. He has to reach some sort of favorable agreement on the treaty demarcation of the border between what was known as Texas, uh, Spanish Texas at this point, and America. And the border is moved with slightly along the Sabine River, a slightly more favorable deal for the Spanish. But in return, the United States is basically for a song given the rest of Florida, which figures into Hamilton and Washington's idea of manifest destiny. So he at a ridiculously low price gets through the Adams-Onus Treaty. East Florida. Um, however, there's worries going on because at the same time that East Florida is about to fall into America's lap, Henry Clay, the neoconservative of his age, starts suggesting that the United States, as a serious statesman and player in the, on the American national scene, the United States ought to help these nascent revolutions in Latin America, that the Latin Americans want democracy just like we do, and that we should go and support them exporting democracy at the point of a gun, very neoconservative. Again, the idea that all these things are part of the American story is one of the great uh, kind of insights of the last best hope, that you can see the same arguments we have today going back into time. So Henry Clay is saying this, and at the same time, John Quincy Adams, as Secretary of State, and is very much his father's son, is asked to give the 4th of July speech at the Capitol in 1821, where he has to comment on what's going on, and this is quite important for him. And so Adams is, is worried that Clay is going to undo all his good work in East Florida. And he says the United States um, absolutely should not get involved in, this, in the revolutions in Latin and South America, that this is not our point, that rather than assuming, as Henry Clay does, that these, that these revolutions will lead to republics just like ours, this ignores the fact that they've had very different historical and cultural backgrounds to that of the American Republic. And as he says in the speech, you don't change your system of government like you change a coat. And this is a very realist view, that the, what, the form of government you have is the product of centuries of history and culture and macroeconomics, which are specific to the area that they are not universal, that the Spanish republics are unlikely to stay republics and certainly are unlikely to be like the American Republic because obviously they've had a different colonial history to that of the United States. One was colonized by Spain, one was colonized uh, by the British, and for hundreds of years have had a very different cultural, economic, political system. 
and that this explains the differences. So it's not going to morph naturally. You don't just add water, as I put it, over the Iraq war and get George Washington. It's a lot more complicated than this and a lot more difficult than this. And so we should steer clear of this. Um, and famously, he says, in one of the great realist quotes of all time during the speech, America goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. She is the well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all. She is the champion and vindicator only of her own. And this is a core realist thought. Let me repeat it. America goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. She is the well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all. She is the champion and vindicator only of her own. That the United States worries about its national interests first and everybody else's second. That its job is to protect the American experiment in liberty. It wishes everyone else well, but it is responsible primarily for itself. And this is a brilliant realist insight. Do not fight unnecessary wars. And this comes into even more focus over the Monroe Doctrine of December 1823. And the doctrine is incredibly bold and actually was a bluff that worked brilliantly. But it's only worked because, again, Adams understood those three basic facts, that Europe is turning inward, that Spain is a mess, and that the British Navy is the prime force, military force of the age. And he crafts this into a policy that suits America for really the next hundred years. And what it says, the Monroe Doctrine, is there ought to be no further European colonization in the Western Hemisphere. That Europe should no longer meddle in the Western Hemisphere, and then if it does, this will be seen as a direct threat to the United States. So no further European colonization or meddling in the Western Hemisphere, and in return, the U.S. is not going to interfere in European affairs. And this goes back to the no stupid war theory. The United States wants to steer clear of Europe because... What, the, what Adams is doing through the Monroe Doctrine is saying is really articulating what America's primary interests are. And this is always the challenge for realists. And the great advantage of realism is that you talk about what's primary for the United States, what's secondary, and what's tertiary. What you absolutely have to do, what you'd like to do, and what on a perfect day you'd have done. They are not the same. If you do not do this, you fight constant wars. If everything is important... Nothing is important, and Adams is articulating through the Monroe Doctrine that the primary American interest is the Western Hemisphere. In other words, is what is nearest to it. Again, the geo in geostrategy. We leave the geography out of it way too often. And again, as we talk, please keep looking at a map, because the Western Hemisphere, he sees in line with Washington's farewell address, which Adams is building on, if Washington and Hamilton had the revolutionary insight in terms of foreign policy, that if they kept Europe out of North America, it would naturally come to be dominated by the United States. So John Quincy Adams expands on this and says, you know, looking around, nobody can stop the United States from being the dominant force over time, over generations, you have to think ahead, over time in the Western Hemisphere, that no one in Latin or South America is likely to give the United States problems. In Central and South America, there are no rival great powers. That the Plains Indians, despite the brilliance of Crazy Horse, can't stop us. That the Canadians can't stop us. The Mexicans can't stop us. And no one further down in Brazil or in any of the Bolivarian revolutions are going to be able to stop the United States from dominating the Western Hemisphere. And so the key fact becomes, can the United States control, can the United States control what's going on in the Western Hemisphere. 
And he thinks, yes, but only, and here is the great, here's the great secret, only if Europe doesn't meddle. The one fly in the ointment is Europe meddling. So the United States must fight no stupid wars with the Europeans and stay out of European politics. And then naturally, over time, the Western Hemisphere will fall into America's lap. It is our primary interest, and Europeans should not encroach upon that. Now, that's a very bold statement and builds naturally on it, but it depends on some basic facts, which are rather uncomfortable. The primary among these facts is the United States can't possibly at this period of time in the 1820s, enforce it. The United States Army and Navy can't enforce this at all. And so Adams relies on the British Navy to enforce it because he shrewdly realizes that British interests and American interests are in line, that the last thing that the British want is Spain to try to regain its colonies. And there was some talk of this. There had been a reactionary holy alliance set up after the Napoleonic Wars during the period of the Congress of Vienna, the, the autocratic European states like the Tsars, Russia, that Metternich's Austria-Hungary, Prussia, are going to get together and form this alliance, which was primarily a defensive pact. But they talked about stopping any other forms of revolution because they're still terrified by the French Revolution. But one of the factors that they float is that maybe we help the Spanish Bourbons reclaim their, their empire in Central and South America, that we, that we have them do that. And the British are absolutely against this because the colonial system that the Spanish had put in place with Central and South America was mercantilist, meaning that all the goods tended to go to Spain, that it wasn't a free market where these goods could be traded and dealt with by the British, who were the chief commercial power of the age through their navy and through their banking houses in London, that this wouldn't happen. Instead, the Spanish would gain all the benefits of the empire. And this is the last thing. This is the last thing the British want. They want free trade with Central and South America because the lion's share of that trade is going to be with them. And Adams knows this. So the British Navy, in effect, backstops Adams's grandiose claims. And Adams realizes this that they will because it's entirely in British commercial interests that they can trade at length as they do. They come to dominate in the 19th century trade with Central and South America. Only later does the United States begin to move in. But that's fine for now, according to Adams. So the British Navy is willing to backstop Adams's claim. And so the Bolivarian revolutionaries are lucky in that it suits their interests that both Britain and the United States keep the rest of Europe out. So there is no, after a little bit of talk, there is no real effort made by the Holy Alliance to retake the Spanish um, imperial territory. And as a result, they do free trade with London and everybody's happy. Now, Thomas Jefferson said that the United States ought to make, he was an ex-president, the most respected person around at the time. And of course, he had founded the Jeffersonian movement of which James Monroe was a member. He was the grand founding father of James Monroe's political party. And Monroe had been a protege of Jefferson's. And he said, you know, we should just formally make a, make a statement with the British saying that we are in agreement about the Monroe Doctrine. And John Quincy Adams argues the opposite and manages to win over Monroe. And this is a sign of how important uh, John Quincy Adams was to Monroe, that he was able to turn him, turn his back on, on his mentor and go along with John Quincy Adams. He said, no, the Uni American Republic needs to be seen to do this on its own. It needs to articulate its interests on its own. Yes, the British are backstopping this. And privately, I'm sure he said, yeah, without them, without the British Navy, there's no deal here. 
But let's not say that. Let's make it clear this is American policy for all, all time. So as the American power grows, as inevitably it will, as Washington, Hamilton, and now John Quincy Adams say, as this power grows, the United States will more and more be able to make this its backstop. But in the interim, we'll use the British. Now, the interim lasted for most of the 19th century. But in the end, John Quincy Adams' political risk bet came to pass. And that's precisely what happened and the British back it up. But because we didn't say we were going into this with the British, we are now not part of European politics. We're, we stayed out from formally allying with Britain. We don't go so far as to formally ally with Britain, which you might have had to do over the Monroe Doctrine. We maintain our independence while at the same time benefiting from the fact that British interests and American interests are the same. And that's the great magic trick of the Monroe Doctrine. The idea that by not fighting stupid wars, not embroiling ourselves with the Spanish, not directly favoring uh, the Latin American revolutions, indirectly saying though to Europe, butt out, stay out of the hemisphere, the United States gets everything at once without finding itself entangled with Europe in any way. It neither has to fight the Spanish Empire, but nor does it have to side with the British in a formal alliance. It avoids the two sea monsters. Uh, to use uh, Odysseus's turn from the Odyssey, we don't have to fight the Scylla or the Charybdis. We don't have to directly fight the Spanish, and we don't have to directly ally with the British. And we get to avoid both of these while laying down the idea that Europe must no longer meddle in the Western Hemisphere, the United States is staking its claim that the area nearest to it is almost always is the case in geostrategy is its primary interest, that the land nearest to you is your primary interest. The farther you get from your country, it tends to be less of an interest that you have, certainly in the age of the sailing ship. And so this is the second great innovation that Adams realizes, John Quincy Adams realizes that as Hamilton and Washington got right, that North America will inevitably come to be dominated by the United States. So John Quincy Adams, through seeing all this and reading the tea leaves, sees that the United States will come to dominate the whole of the Western Hemisphere, but again, if and only if Europe stays out. And by God, this holds. There are some exceptions. Yes, the French under Napoleon III had a quixotic effort to try to take over Mexico through Maximilian, the Habsburg, the tragic Habsburg prince, while the United States is preoccupied with the Civil War. At the same time, the Spanish make some efforts to reconquer the Dominican Republic. Both of these fail. They don't even last 10 years in either case. And when the 1860s and 70s come to an end, this doesn't work. But these are blips over on the overall picture. The overall picture is John Quincy Adams's political risk bet comes to pass. And the United States comes to dominate through the Monroe Doctrine all of the Western Hemisphere, making it perennially a great power. And it does so because John Quincy Adams affects, through the Monroe Doctrine, this second great geostrategic revolution. And of course, this plays out into our own era. His mantra of no more stupid wars, echoed later by President Trump, the United States forgot all this after the Cold War when it was the only superpower around. And hubris, again, they, it's great to have a classics degree, uh, to know about the classics, uh, because hubris explains this, that on the left, the Wilsonian left, humanitarian interventions, uh, be they in Haiti, Bosnia, Kosovo, um, or later, tragically and, and ruinously in Libya, these fail. And on the right, nation building on the neoconservative right, particularly the forever wars 
of Iraq and Afghanistan fail because we start fighting stupid wars, that we go abroad in search of sea monsters to destroy, when none of these countries remotely are secondary interests, let alone primary interests. Think of them. Haiti, Bosnia, Kosovo, Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan. Once um, al-Qaeda are routed in Afghanistan, there isn't a primary interest here, and yet we fight stupid wars going directly against realist thinking. In the new era, we must rediscover the immense wisdom of John Quincy Adams and only fight wars when it suits America's primary national interests. By the way, this also calls in our era for more of a, a more, more of a focus on the Western Hemisphere, which we've taken for granted. We tend to either be over-involved or under-involved in the 20th century. We're either invading the place and then putting in dictators that we like and then forgetting all the social and economic points uh, about these countries. And then when they become septic, we reinvade them. Um, or we don't have anything to do with them. And with China... Is influence brewing where China's trade is in, in South and Central America is off the chart. With China flirting with basing on Cuba, think of the Kennedy brothers. Uh, we need to rediscover that the Western Hemisphere is our primary interest and not far flung non entities like Ukraine. We have to go back to basics, which is what this book is about. And John Quincy Adams, through affecting the second great geostrategic revolution of the Monroe Doctrine, that the Western Hemisphere is off limits to Europe, that we no longer want to be Europe, Europe meddling in it, nor will we meddle in Europe, that through doing this, the Western Hemisphere will come to be dominated by the American Republic. And the key to this is not fighting stupid wars. And this should be a mantra hung everywhere. So if we need from our first point to be leery of alliances and only enter into them when they suit specific American interests, our second realist point moving ahead has to be the simple notion that John Quincy Adams laid out in his 4th of July speech of 1821 and later in the Monroe Doctrine of 1823, no more stupid wars. Thank you very much. These are fun. I'm just enjoying riffing off and explaining what I was thinking as I was writing The Last Best Hope, A History of American Realism. Again, please do order the book and get everyone who might be interested that you know. I'm counting on you to be I hate this term, influencers, and everyone who might be interested, the sooner they buy them, the better in order to defeat the dreaded Amazon um, algorithm. But we're off to a wonderful start. Thank you so much. Many of you have already done this. For those of you who haven't, today's the day. Pre-order the book and tell everyone who might be interested to do so. Next week, we look at an underrated realist hero, William Seward, and the Lincoln administration, which avoids calamity in the Civil War, which will give us our third realist uh, precept moving ahead. And I love these old, forgotten, great figures of American history. And like Quentin Tarantino with John Travolta, I want to make them famous again. Take care. Have a great weekend. And I'll see you next week when we talk more about Raymond Chandler and then William Seward. Take care.